children's moment. You can tell summer break is coming to an end. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's for some of us that we're, that we're worn out. It's been a warm summer and been a little exhausting. Uh, maybe it's time to get a routine back with the kids and get some bedtimes and school schedules. But uh, the, this last month of summer, we've spent our Sundays looking back at some of the uh, Old Testament characters in the Bible, just rereading their experiences that they had with God and with one another and finding in those experiences things for us. I mean, places where we connect with them. We started with Moses and Moses' call from God at the burning bush. And we considered together what it means to be called by God and what that looks like even in our own lives. And then we looked at Ruth. And in particular, her relationship with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and when both of their husbands had died, how Ruth demonstrated compassion for Naomi, stayed with her, cared for her, and supported her. And then last week, David, King David, but before he had been made king, we, we read about his battle with Goliath. And in that story, how we saw David's conviction for who God is and who David was as a child of God and who the people of God were in the world at that time. And he stood on his conviction. If you missed any of those, you know, we make them available on our website or on our podcast. You can catch up there. We're going to conclude this series of biblical characters and turn our attention this Sunday to Esther. And so I want to read for you now briefly from Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. And we're going to put it up on the screen. And I'll just say before I read it, you know, Esther is, I said this about Ruth as well. Esther's one of only two books of the Bible that are named after women, Ruth and Esther. And Esther's also the only book in the Bible that makes no mention of God. Anywhere in the whole book. Nothing. God, Messiah, Christ, none of it. And yet it's part of our Holy Scripture. Because there's something in there that's good and true and beautiful about what it means to be people of God in the world. And so we're going to read from Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. This is what it says. When they told Mordecai Esther's words, he had them respond to Esther, don't think for one minute that unlike all the other Jews, you'll come out of this alive simply because you are in the palace. In fact, if you don't speak up at this very important time, relief and rescue will appear for the Jews from another place. But you and your family will die. But who knows? Maybe it was for a moment like this that you came to be part of the royal family. Esther sent back this word to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and tell them to give up eating to help me be brave. They aren't to eat or drink anything for three whole days, and I myself will do the same, along with my female servants. Then, even though it's against the law, I will go to the king, and if I am to die, then die I will. So Mordecai left where he was and did exactly what Esther had ordered him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hope. Hope also played keys at the 9 o'clock service, the modern service that we have. And I uh, hope we want you to have a great senior year this year. And when you graduate and go off to college, don't go far, okay? 
Okay, so that story we just read, that moment in Esther's life where she demonstrates remarkable courage, and we'll say more about that, is a moment that changed the course of Jewish history, and fair to say probably the course of human history. But it's helpful to have a little context. I mean, we just plucked those verses sort of right out of the middle of the book. By the way, that book of Esther, it's a great read. It's a great story. Turns, unexpected twists, humor, I I highly recommend it. And it wouldn't take you long at all to read the whole book. But we we plucked those verses out of the middle. Really, the story of Esther starts with King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, which he's actually another name, he's called by his king Xerxes. I like that one better, Xerxes. That's just sort of a cool name. It's got two X's in it. If you're looking for a baby name that, that it would be, you know, that would stand out, Xerxes might be good to consider. X-E-R-X-E-S. But anyway, you got King Xerxes, and he's the king of Persia. And his kingdom was the most vast of any at the time and stretched all the way from Egypt over to Turkey, all the way into India. And Israel was part of the Persian kingdom at this time. This is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And so King Xerxes looks around. He's proud of all that he's got. And so he decides to throw a party. He throws a seven-day rager and invites all the noble dignitaries, influential people that he can think of to come and celebrate with him all that he is and all that he has. In fact, there's a place in there where it says um, that he wanted to show off all of his possessions to these other nobility uh, because he considered them a mirror of himself. He found his identity, his value, his importance in the stuff that he had, in all that he had acquired. And so he's got this party going and everybody's gathered and they're throwing down and it says, on the seventh day of drinking, just let that sit in for a second, (laughs) on the seventh day of drinking, He gets the idea he wants to show off his most prized possession. So he calls for the queen, Queen Vashti, to come and present herself before all of these dignitaries in the crown. And I mean, really, the implication there is not just, hey, I want to introduce you to my wife. But it's more of a, look what I got. And uh, so Vashti says, no, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm not trying to be paraded out here in front of a bunch of men. I'm not trying to be shown off as a possession. And so she tells the king, no. Well, this causes a problem. And so Xerxes calls all of his trusted advisors together and says, what do I do? My queen has refused to come and let me show her off to all of my friends. And so as we are wont to do, guys, all the men gathered around to decide what the women should do. And, um, and so they have this powwow, this conversation, and one of the guys in particular says, well, this is going to be a problem because if word gets around the kingdom that the queen can tell the king that she doesn't want to do something that he wants her to do, then all of a sudden all the wives are going to be telling the husbands they don't want to do what the husband wants them to do. And then what are we going to do? I love, this, I love it. The, the women's liberation movement is born right here in Persia. And, and so they decide that the king should just tell Vashti she can't be the queen anymore and put her out. 
Again, just, I wonder how this story would have gone differently if Xerxes had consulted a woman or two about what do I do in my relationship? I got a little bit of an issue going on here with my wife. Could you give me some wisdom? But no, no, got all the guys together. They figured it out like we do. And so they, the king puts Vashti out. She's no longer the queen of Persia. And this is where Esther enters the story. Esther lived with her uncle, Mordecai. Her parents were deceased, and so Mordecai cared for her. They were Jewish. They were part of the, the Jews who were living in Susa, the capital of Persia. In fact, Mordecai worked at the gate for the king's palace, sort of guarded the gate. And um, so some of the king's servants went around to gather up all of the best eligible women to audition to be the next queen of Persia. I picture this as like the, the original bachelor, I guess. I don't know if they were giving out roses or well, I don't know how it went exactly, but they do tell some of the story in there. And Esther was one of the ones who, who's chosen to come and be a part of this, if you will, competition. And, um, and all the while, as she's going into the palace and she becomes part of this effort, to, she's welcomed into all of the grandeur. Her people the Jews who live in Persia at that time are essentially second-class citizens. I mean, they were brought to Susa to be servants, to be slaves. In fact, when Esther goes in to participate in this effort to become the queen of Persia, her uncle Mordecai tells her, just don't tell them that you're Jewish. Because the Jews were the slaves, the servants. They didn't hold any dignified position in society. I mean, could you imagine living in a place where you were treated like a second-class citizen all your life? Less than? Just because of your ethnicity, your race, religion, or language? And that's how the Jews lived in Persia. Disadvantaged, not given the same opportunities of other people because they were considered to be a servant class. Now, there may be some folks in here who can relate to that, but can we just be honest for a minute and say that really in, in America as white Christians, we're not fully able to relate to what it would feel like to live your whole life or generations of your existence, your family's existence, treated as second class, not afforded the same opportunities or privileges. And I'm, I'm going to just go in for myself and say as a white, hetero, male, Christian, I mean, I acknowledge I've had opportunities and, and been given possibilities that other people haven't. I mean, it's, it's hard to even fully understand what it would feel like to live in a society or a culture I didn't have those opportunities. Just having the opportunities, having the privilege isn't an indictment. I mean, what you do with it matters. 
who you are as a person and how you live matters. And so it's not an indictment to, to experience privilege. I mean, unless, say, you're going to participate in perpetuating a system that disadvantages other people to your own advantage. So it's not inherently an indictment of an individual, but, but then it's a matter of what you do with it. And see, that's what happened to Esther. She went from being a part of that second-class citizenry to, to now having an opportunity to potentially be the queen. And for a year, it says, she lived in the palace. She had all the best that anybody could want. All the best food, clothing, servants. I mean, she was going to the spa every week. The salon, mani-pedis, whenever she wanted them. Like, eating at the nicest restaurants in town. Like, she, she had that, she lived that, in that neighborhood, that, that one address where, you know, everybody wants to live. Because that means you've made it. I mean, that was Esther's life. You know, granted, she had to sort of lean into it a little bit, but, but a lot of it was just given to her. Those opportunities, that provision was just handed to her. And, as the story goes, she's the one who's chosen to be queen. So she becomes Queen Esther, Queen of Persia, Xerxes' wife. And then just about that same time, King Xerxes' second-in-command, Haman, when he became second-in-command, all of the people who worked in the palace and around Susa, particularly worked for the king, guards and so forth, whenever Haman would come around, they would bow a knee to him, just like he was the king himself. As he sort of represented the king as the second-in-command, except for one guy in particular, in the story, Mordecai. Remember Mordecai, Esther's uncle? Whenever Haman would pass by the gate, all the soldiers who worked at the gate would bow a knee in honor. It was a way of sort of acknowledging the king as being the reigning authority in your life. And Haman got the same privilege and acknowledgement, except for Mordecai, who wouldn't bow a knee to an earthly ruler. And this aggravated Haman enough that he went to the king and he said, we got a problem we got a guy out here who won't acknowledge your authority or mine, your reign, mine. And I don't think it's just him. I think it's all of his people. And so the king says, well, then you do what you need to do to deal with it. And so Haman gets the king to pass a decree that they're going to put Mordecai and all of his people, all the Jews, to death. I'm going to kill them and take everything that's theirs. In fact, there's one place where it says that Haman and some of his men rolled dice to decide what date was going to be the slaughter. And so the king passes this decree at the advice of Haman. They post it where everybody can see it. Mordecai sees it, realizes what's about to happen to him and all of his people. And so he does, the only thing he knows to do is he sends word to Esther, his niece, the queen. To say, you got to help us. Please, you got to do something about this. Go to the king and plead for us. And Esther sends word back to Mordecai, I don't think that's such a good idea. You remember Vashti? 
didn't, didn't turn out too well for her. And plus, you can't just go in and see the king. If he doesn't invite you in and you barge in, then you're supposed to be put to death. She said, if I was to do that, it would put my very life on the line. Now, that's when Mordecai sends word back to her, and that's the verses that we read just a minute ago. When he said, you know, you may not be willing to do this, and fine, rescue, relief will come for God's people from some other way. But you and yours may not survive it. And it, in fact, it may be for this very moment that you have that position of privilege that has been afforded to you. Some translations say for such a time as this. Mordecai sends this desperate word back to Esther. You've got to acknowledge the need. I understand right now you may be acting and thinking and living like all of these people's problems aren't yours. But they are. You may think that because of the life that you have that you will escape this injustice. But you won't. I mean, it, it brings to mind the words of Martin Niemöller, who was a, a Lutheran pastor in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler. Words that are immortalized now at the U.S. Holocaust Museum in our nation's capital. Maybe you've heard them before. He said, they came for the communists, and I didn't say anything, because I wasn't a communist. They came for the socialists. And I didn't say anything because I wasn't a socialist. They came for the trade unioners and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a trade unioner. They came for the Jews and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me. And there was no one left to say anything for me. In that moment, Esther realized, heard from Mordecai, that in fact her people were in grave danger. And that they were her people. They belonged to her and she belonged to them. She became aware of the injustice, the hurting, the need around her. And in that moment, she had the courage to do something about it. And don't you know that was hard for her? She'd come from nothing. And now had everything. She was living a good life. And what was about to happen to some people, maybe that would affect her, maybe it wouldn't. She had plenty to do. She had a lot going on. 
In fact, there may not have been anything in it for her. But she was willing to risk what she had. To take a step out to speak up on behalf of God's children who are hurting. And as a result of Esther's courage, the course of history was changed. Because, you know, she went to the king's courtyard. She didn't go in to where his throne was, again, because the, the penalty for that was death. But she went to the courtyard to where she could be seen by him, got his attention, and he invited her in. And then she said, can I cook you a meal? Let me feed you. You and Haman, would you come and have a meal with me? In fact, she cooked him two meals, two days in a row, because sometimes once isn't enough, right? I mean, sometimes you just got to keep at it until you have the opportunity to have somebody's ear. And it says that King Xerxes then asked her, Esther, what can I do for you? What do you want? And she said, just give me my life and the lives of my people. Let us be free. And she explained the story and the circumstances and how the decree came to be passed. And the king said, I will grant what you ask. And he issued a new decree. That none of the people, none of the Jewish people that were living in Persia should fear anymore for their life or for their safety. And in fact, they had the ability, they were granted the ability to stand up for themselves and defend themselves and to enjoy life with all of its privileges and provisions in a Persia just like anybody else would be able to. The king opened up the fullness of life to this people group who were all but dead and had been treated as second class their entire existence. In fact, that's the origins of the feast, the festival that still exists today because for days the Jews celebrated their relief from this fear of being exterminated. And, And so... They started this festival and it's called Purim and they celebrate it still today and they exchange gifts and they exchange food and they have big meals as a way to acknowledge what God did for them that day through Esther. And no, God's not mentioned anywhere in that story. And and you know what, maybe because sometimes we don't have to overly religiize stuff and we just know what's good and right and true and beautiful and holy and we do it and in the midst of that God moves and works and sets people free I had a friend at one of my former churches she was a dental hygienist and um, she worked with other dental hygienists they had an association she was about to actually become the the president of it for the state of Georgia and they worked in some school systems and and communities where the hygienists could go in and give just basic dental care to people and to children who couldn't afford it otherwise and and the state of Georgia was considering legislation that would actually require dentists to be present to be a part of any of that and sort of put some more restrictions and requirements on it but Nancy when she heard about that she recognized that the effect of that would be that really it wouldn't be financially feasible anymore for them to try to bring dentists to all these places and to supervise all that work and so what what was going to happen was that it would mean there would be children and people who wouldn't otherwise get this care that wouldn't be able to get it now. And so she gathered the folks in her association and uh, they, they lobbied at the state level to try to have some 
changes made to that legislation that would give them the room and the space to still care for people who needed it and wouldn't be able to get it. She saw a need and she recognized where her place and her position afforded her the opportunity. She had the voice to speak up and help make a difference. You know, much like Esther asked for Mordecai and the Jews in Susa to not eat, to fast, and what's implied there is then to pray and to be there to support her. That's, that's the beauty of having a community of faith. When, when you see a place where you can speak up or stand up or get involved and help make a difference and meet a need, that there are people who will surround you and be there for you and maybe even join you in the work of God's kingdom coming for everybody, everywhere. I don't know if you would know this or care, but uh, Stacy's husband Dalton and I have been elected at the past uh, annual conference of the United Methodist Church to go with nine other clergy and 11 lay people to represent us at the general conference, which happens next year. That's the worldwide gathering of the Methodist Church. And uh, so we'll be a part of that legislative work and voting and decision making. And, um, and so I'm asking you that for Dalton and I and the rest of us as we go, that you would um, pray for strength and courage for us to do and say what is good and right for people, particularly people who've been marginalized disadvantaged, even by the church. The head of our delegation, Reverend Dr. Byron Thomas, has asked us as delegates to do that, to adopt a practice of fasting between now and the general conference. This is a way to prepare us to do and be who God has called us to. What about you? I mean, there are moments, there are times where God puts you in a place, gives you an opportunity, a position, a privilege, a voice, influence for just a time as this. So that you, me, we together might open up the fullness of God's kingdom for everybody, everywhere. So that we might be involved in righting the wrongs, bringing healing the broken places, setting right the injustices. And all of it to the glory of God so that God's kingdom would come. I want to ask you if you would make that a prayer with me real quick before we sing our closing hymn. Oh God, we are your people. We're thankful for the story of Esther your daughter, and her courage in that moment of need to be aware and to respond. Oh God, may we be courageous people for your kingdom in our world today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If if you're looking for a